SCCT would like to thank Philips for its sponsorship of the JCCT Pulse podcast and let our listeners know that Philips has received the Ant Mini Award for Best Radiology Device 2021 for their new Spectral CT 7500. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for how to get more information on this latest innovation from Philips. Welcome to the JCCT Pulse, a podcast that brings you an overview of the most recent issue of the Journal of Cardiovascular Computed Tomography and in-depth conversations with the article authors. Each episode, we will go over several hand-picked articles to keep you up to date with the latest in cardiovascular CT. I'm your host, Todd Valines, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cardiovascular CT and the Julian Ruffin Beckwith Distinguished Professor of Medicine at the University of Virginia. This is Todd Valines, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cardiovascular Computed Tomography, and I'm really pleased today to be joined by Andrew Choi and to talk about Andrew's paper and his co-investigator's paper titled CT Evaluation by Artificial Intelligence for Atherosclerosis, Stenosis, and Vascular Morphology, the Clarify Study a multi-center international study that is published in the November-December issue of the JCCT. Andrew is the co-director of Cardiac CT and associate professor at, of medicine at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. He's also a member of the board of directors of the Society of Cardiovascular CT. Welcome, Andrew. Todd, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be back on the, on the podcast, and you do an outstanding job every issue with this, so... I'm glad to be here. Well, thanks so much. And you're back because you published a really interesting paper in, in this issue of the JCCT. And, you know, I mean, you go anywhere today in, in the field of cardiovascular CT, whether it's a meeting, you open any journal, and all the rage is about artificial intelligence, machine learning. How can that make cardiovascular CT better? So maybe just we'll just start by some of the background into why you did this paper, how you did this paper. What was some of the background and hypothesis behind this particular study? Thanks, Todd. Well, really cutting through the hype of AI, what we want to do is to really show data because as a field, CT is at the precipice of, of being it already is a first line approach to the diagnosis of coronary disease, and there's tremendous amount of data around plaque evaluation now. So how do we take that the next step and next level? And I think AI is the way for us to do that. We know that we fail to diagnose 20 to 40% of heart attacks because we don't identify that up front. We know that if you look at an average imaging specialist, they may be asked if you look at the number of studies, the number of pixels, it's over a billion pixels per day that is on CT scans. And I think it gets to a point where it goes beyond what can be reasonably done, especially if you're starting to think about plaque analysis. And I think you also think about reproducibility. How do we translate the diagnosis of coronary disease on CT so that we can do it accurately, reflect guideline-based practice, and also reduce downstream testing? And what we sought to do is to be part of the first steps with this validation study. Right. Well, yeah. So that, you know, the, the potential that we can, as readers, be better by using artificial intelligence, I think is really exciting. So walk us through your study. Uh, what were the methods of Clarify? And then we'll kind of walk through the results and what, the, what does this mean to our readers and to the field going forward? 
Yeah, thank you, Todd, for that question. So when you think about AI, you want to think about how do you validate? And if you think in CT, I think the thresholds are the first start with uh, level three expert readers. How does AI perform against expert clinicians? And then moving forward from there. And so with level three expert as a standard, we took consecutive patients, 232 from three centers, Hugo Marquez's group in Portugal, our group at GW, as well as Ron Carlsberg's group in LA, and had three level three readers read the studies and come to a consensus on uh, percent stenosis, as well as the presence of high-risk plaque features. And then we had the CTs evaluated by the AI algorithm. Now, the artificial intelligence algorithm, what does it do? It's a a cloud-based software. There's a company called Clearly that does this. And what it does is it automatically takes the images to a, a cloud, does automated segmentation of all of the vessels and the vessel segments, the vessel lumen, evaluates for stenosis, evaluates fully for quantitative plaque, as well as for uh, quantitatively defined high-risk plaque features, including low attenuation and positive for modeling. Does automatic labeling of the vessel tree, and then does a graphical output of what the stenosis is, the CADRAT score of the uh, plaque features, and then it allows us to then uh, apply it uh, into clinical practice. And so uh, we sought to validate how good would the AI do against uh, level three expert readers, against standard thresholds for stenosis, as well as CADRADs. Wow. So comparing, you know, the very best expert readers who have been doing this a while versus the AI algorithm. And, you know, I understand that you looked at vessels that were at least 1.5 millimeters or, or larger from these coronary CT data sets. So what did you find? How did, how did AI do against level three readers? Yeah. And so when you look at the results of this study, uh, and we were, we were surprised by this also, the diagnostic accuracy for stenosis, and the stenosis is defined by over 50% and 70% stenosis was quite high. And so for 70% stenosis, the accuracy was over 99% with a sensitivity and specificity of 91 and nearly 100%. And for 50% stenosis, the accuracy was about 95% with a a sensitivity and specificity that was about 80 and 97%. We found that by agreement that the maximal stenosis on a per vessel basis was very small. The mean difference is only about 1% and it ranged about 10 to 15%. And we we also looked because in clinical practice, CADRADS is what we use. And so we compared this against CADRADS categories. And we found that on a per patient basis, there was 98% agreement between the AI and level three consensus within one CADRADS category. And most of the time, the disagreement was that AI identified plaque about 13% of the time that resulted in a change from CADRAD0 to CADRAD1. And so there was high accuracy for the AI analysis. Yeah, in fact, I think when you looked at uh, within the paper, within not only did AI detect a little more plaque compared to expert readers, but the presence of high-risk plaque, it actually, if I recall, detected more high-risk plaque as compared to uh, consensus expert reads. And but was still very good agreement overall, over eighty percent agreement. Yes, exactly. So, you know, I think the key to unlocking the really power of CT for prognostication, risk prediction, and also treatment is identification of high risk plaque features, and that includes 
low attenuation plaque positive for modeling. And I think uh, as a reader, it's something that as a field we we understand and we've known for the last decade going back to Matayama, but it's been harder mm-hmm. to apply in clinical practice. It's very hard to see the small areas of low-density plaque. I think we have to start to really do this on a quantitative basis to be able to apply this. And I think the AI actually in some ways may do a better job of seeing that uh, low-density plaque compared to human readers. Uh, and that, that is something we're also mm-hmm. providing further analysis in the future. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of interest, obviously, in plaque volume and plaque quantification. You know, in several recent papers showing the, the additional prognostic value, for example, of quantifying uh, low attenuation plaque as one example. You know, in this paper, you did not quantify plaque volumes or do plaque quantification. But I understand that this that's something that your that your group is also working on using this particular technology. Can, maybe you can just comment on, on where, where this technology is also being studied. Yeah. And so the focus of this was to demonstrate as a first step accuracy for percent stenosis. And for that, the AI approach was found to be very accurate. We did report out that the AI approach here identified a wide range of atherosclerosis, and that's in the supplement as far as plaque volume. But what we are doing now is validation against QCA as well as invasive FFR. And that's a study that is under review right now. And I think we'll be hopefully impressed by the time this podcast is broadcast. There's also the ongoing multi-center study called Invictus that is comparing this AI approach against IVIS or OCT for a stenosis burden and atherosclerosis so that there is a clear established gold standard to evaluate atherosclerosis burden so that the field will have confidence that this AI approach is, is accurate. We, we believe it is. Yeah, well, terrific. Any limitations to your analysis that our listeners should be aware of? And then I guess my second question is, you know, where do you see this field going for the clinician on the front lines doing cardiac CT? Yeah, I think the limitations to this is that this was a focus on stenosis, that our prevalence of disease was relatively low, about 15%, but that will be addressed in the upcoming study that uh, in which we, we have a larger population with a disease prevalence of over 55%. And I think that will uh, give further confidence. And I think the second is, as you mentioned, really honing in on atherosclerosis and looking at advancement of gold standards. So, you know, I think that this is a foundational, this is the very first study validating this AI-based approach for CTA. I, and I think as as there is already confidence in stenosis evaluation. It allows application into clinical practice, but there has been also initial algorithmic validation, I should point out, in over a million images for the centerline and over a million images for the lumen and vessel wall from over 3,500 patients and 20,000 vessels. And I think that where now, where is this field going? If we have AI-based approaches that are validated, that are rapid, the analysis is here can be done in 10 minutes, then you know, I think this really moves us into putting both AI-based evaluation and plaque evaluation into routine clinical practice. I'm excited for what's to come here this year and in the next few years to come. 
Well, great. Congratulations to you, Andrew, Dr. Earls, and all of your other co-investigators on this paper, the Clarify study. As you mentioned, one of the very first studies to assess the accuracy of artificial intelligence compared to expert readers in coronary CT. It's published in the November-December issue of the JCCT. Thanks so much for being with us today, Andrew. Thanks, Todd. And I also want to, again, acknowledge Dr. Earls and all the co-authors that have been so instrumental in this ongoing work. Great. All right. Well, thanks, Andrew. Take care. Thanks, Todd. Hi, I'm Todd Valines, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Cardiovascular Computed Tomography, the JCCT, and I'm very pleased to have with us today Dr. Jeff Rubin. Dr. Rubin is the professor and chair in the Department of Advanced Cardiovascular Imaging at the University of Arizona in Tucson, and we'll be discussing a paper that he and his co-investigators published in the November-December issue of the JCCT titled, The Direct Costs of Coronary CT Angiography Relative to Contrast Enhanced Thoracic CT, Time-Driven Activity-Based Costing. Welcome, Dr. Rubin. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, so may, you know, one of the things our, re, our listeners will certainly be interested in, what was the background for performing this particular study uh, that assessed direct time-driven costs comparing CT versus non, you know, non-cardiovascular CT and contrast-enhanced thoracic CT? Well, the backdrop uh, has been that for a number of years now, we have seen compelling data suggesting that coronary CT angiography should be playing a major, if not dominant, role in the diagnosis of patients with chest pain. And yet, it didn't seem to be gaining traction. And when we spoke to uh, folks around the country, one of the barriers that was constantly uh, called upon was the level of reimbursement and the fact that it was perceived as being more expensive to perform and not effectively reimbursed. In fact, in recent years, uh, there had been declines in reimbursement for coronary CT angiography relative to other diagnostic imaging tests for acute chest pain. And so we sought to unpack why that might be. And focusing on what we would like to believe should be a fundamental driver of reimbursement, namely the cost of performing a procedure, we sought to design a study that would allow us to quantify the actual cost of coronary CT angiography relative to another imaging test, namely contrast-enhanced thoracic CT, um, which are both included in the same APC ambulatory procedure code family of the OPS program associated with the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And some of the unique things that we sought to do was to not look at a single center, to look across multiple centers and to be able to accommodate for variations in practice that might be found across a group of centers and to essentially measure the costs directly of performing contrast-enhanced CT versus contrast-enhanced coronary CTA and to look and see whether the hypothesis that seems to underlie CMS's approach of reimbursing them the same is associated with the same costs of performing the two studies. 
Yeah, so for, for our listeners, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. We know that these are roughly reimbursed about the same within just a few dollars of each other. Yet all of us who do, you know, coronary CT angiography, cardiovascular CT know that, you know, the patient preparation, the pre-medication, the post-processing, everything takes longer and yet they're reimbursed the same. And so, um, you know, kudos for, to you and your 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 group of investigators for digging into this. So walk walk us through what what methods. I mean, how you know we know cost is challenging to quantify. How did you all perform this particular study? So we used a method called time driven activity based costing, and this is a method that is intended to determine the cost of a procedure, of an encounter, uh, of any uh, measurable element of uh, production by associating it with time that is required for all the different components and then valuing that time with a conversion rate of dollars per unit time. And so consequently, the basis of time-driven activity-based costing is is to look at the time that various labor elements are participating in the study, uh, the time that a CT room is occupied, and then the resources that are consumed within the scan room, within the preparation, in the follow-up, etc. And so the actual implementation investigated the performance of coronary CTA and contrast-enhanced CT across seven centers around the country and involving five different states that all had leaders in cardiovascular imaging and coordinated the direct acquisition and data collection at each site. And so patients who were coming through for coronary CTA and patients that were coming through for contrast-enhanced CT scans um, were followed by different types of individuals depending upon the center, but with a stopwatch or a, a stopwatch application on the phone. And Uh, many different elements of the procedure were measured directly in terms of how long did this nurse spend with the patient in the pre-procedure stage? How long did the technologist spend with the patient during the different phases? And this led to the accumulation of data for all the different patients at the different sites. And by organizing them into very discrete portions of the exam, the preparatory phase, uh, the performance of the scan itself, the post-procedural monitoring, and then the post-processing. It gave us an opportunity to compare both the different types of labor, be they nursing, technologists, physicians, aides, at the different time points, and to really look in substantial detail as to exactly how much resource utilization is consumed in the course of performing these two different exams. So what do you find? What were the differences? Um, Because, I mean, if you haven't taken a look at this for our listeners, I would really, really encourage you all to go read this paper and this issue of the JCCT. So what were the big results, the take-home results for our listeners? Well, we found substantial differences in the time and costs associated with every phase of the CT exam between the coronary CTA and the contrast-enhanced CT scan. And in a nutshell, we saw that the direct costs of performing coronary CTA were 3.4-fold greater than for contrast-enhanced CT. And that is an amalgamation of labor, and the capital equipment costs, which are the predominant elements of the cost, and then contrast material, um, just a small slice, which actually is about the same between both procedures. 
when we look at the biggest source of difference between coronary CTA and contrast-enhanced CT, most folks won't be surprised to find that it really is the labor that is required to support coronary CTA. In fact, the cost of labor is six and a half times greater for a coronary CTA when compared to a contrast-enhanced CT. And so this really highlights and underscores the fundamental difference in performing coronary CTA relative to contrast-enhanced CT and the primary drivers uh, for the greater cost associated with coronary CTA. Yeah, it's just um, amazing to me, you know, and I think not surprising, but no one had ever documented this. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is really one of the first studies of its kind that the mean duration of of coronary CT in geography was 3.2 times longer than just contrast-enhanced thoracic CT. That's right. And, you know, it it is, to our knowledge, the first time that uh, these measurements have been undertaken, particularly in a multi-center fashion. And hopefully it's not the last, because this is a very powerful and objective means of collecting cost data. And the type of cost assumptions that usually underlie the management of our medical centers, of our hospitals, are not derived by these bottom-up direct measures of resource utilization. Rather, they're determined by other uh, sort of assumptions, top-down levels, where there's a ratio of cost to charges, for example, where there's a lookup table that's applied around the country. And so there's no question that it is much more labor-intensive to perform a costing study using this bottom-up approach, using this sort of these building blocks of actually directly measuring resource utilization. But applied judiciously to answer key questions, I think the effort is worth it. I think that the effort really helps to expose the reality of how different diagnostic tests or therapeutic procedures, for that matter, impact overall costs and the influence and impact on resource utilization for uh, the system as a whole. And, And by doing this with a controlled experiment, It's uh, also helpful in a comparative fashion, as we performed here, to be able to ascertain just how one approach compares to another. It's easy to say, oh, this should cost less than that, or um, that procedure costs more than some other procedure. But until you actually measure it, you really don't know. Yeah, and I think just so informative because, as we know, these APCs, you know, cardiac CT has been lumped in with a a, a large group of of imaging procedures that are supposed to be relatively similar in their, you know, the cost to perform, the time uh, to perform, et cetera. And we see that that was a big assumption by them that was we we all who do this on a daily basis know that it's not, not accurate. And you now have quantified just how different coronary CT is from other non-gated cardiovascular CT exams. So, you know, obviously our hope is that that will translate to perhaps a a reallocation to a more appropriate APC so that costs uh, can be, and reimbursement uh, can be more more fair to CT, particularly now that the new guidelines are out, that we see that coronary CT is the only imaging modality with a level 1A recommendation in patients with either acute or, or stable chest pain. 
No doubt. I think that the evidence that continues to accumulate and now supported through the guidelines, we should see a greater use of coronary CTA, and it's the right thing for our patients. And eliminating structural barriers that you know might be underlying economic drivers that at some level are illogical will be important in order for all of us to provide the best for our patients. And so I'm hopeful that this study provides a basis for a reexamination of how a coronary CTA is reimbursed. The study was not intended to necessarily suggest what the mechanism is for readjusting the reimbursement policies and, you know, doesn't necessarily advise shifting to a different APC one way or the other. Simply, it offers the data that support the fact that coronary CTA should be reimbursed at a substantially higher level than contrast-enhanced CT in order to accommodate the increased costs. Well, thanks so much for being with us today, Jeff. This has been really informative, and I want to congratulate you and your entire group of co-investigators. And just remind our listeners to, to go take a, a read or spend some time looking at this important manuscript titled The Direct Cost of Coronary CTA Relative to Contrast Enhanced Thoracic CT, Time-Driven Activity-Based Costing in this issue of the JCCT. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It was really real privilege to work with a tremendous team of co-authors to help put this together from a multi-center perspective. Our first author, uh, Mike Zimmerman, is a, an accounting background and is a medical student uh, at Duke University, where I was working at the time. Juan Battle, Kathy Biga, Ron Blankstein, Brian Goshajara, Mark Rabat, George Westby, all uh, leaders uh, in the field of cardiovascular imaging and key individuals to assure that we're able to uh, collect reliable data across these different investigative sites. I'm Todd Valines, the Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Cardiovascular CT, the JCCT, and we're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Gudrun Fuchner. She is a radiologist in the Department of Radiology at Innsbruck Medical University at Austria. She's an associate professor in cardiovascular imaging and certainly someone I think that needs no introduction to those of us in the field of cardiovascular CT. Thanks so much for being with us today, Gudrun. Thank you very much, Todd. It's a great honor for us to be highlighted in uh, the JCCT policy issue. Well, in fact, the title of her, your paper, Gudrun, Smoking and Obesity Predict High-Risk Plaque by Coronary CTA in Low Coronary Artery Calcium Score. This is in the November-December issue of the JCCT. Why don't, we, why don't we start by giving us a little background as to why you performed this particular paper? Yes, um, one major background was uh, to assess the relationship between the specific cardiovascular risk factors and high-risk plaque criteria in a specific cohort like the low calcium score category 1 up to 99 Agatson units. Because uh, in 2018, when we designed the study, the AJ's guidelines still left it open to the clinician whether or not initiate statin therapy in less than 100 Agatson units, they stated it should the decision should be made pending on the individual clinical risk profile. And therefore, we went in detail for the six major cardiovascular risk factors. But second, there was also a 
a little bit of political background because we saw the smokers had the strongest relationship and we didn't have a public smoking ban in place in Austria, in our country at this time. And it's still a political issue in many Eastern European countries in contrast to the US, which do not have public smoking bans imposed. To elaborate out a little bit more the relationship between smoking and high-risk black criteria. So you looked at a th- little over a 1,000 symptomatic patients. So these were patients clinically referred for coronary CT, and you focused in specifically on those with an Agatston calcium score between 1 and 99. Is that right? Mm-hmm, correct. It was a retrospective analysis. We enrolled patients referred to coronary CTA for clinical indications. They had a low to intermediate pretest probability in terms of symptomatics, like 50% had atypical chest pain or they had a previous suspicious like arresting EKG or treadmill stress test findings. So they all had a previous baseline checkup at a cardiologist, but were um, did not meet the indications for invasive assessment. So they met the indications for a non-invasive workup. So they were not healthy individuals. Yeah. And so obviously you assess them for stenosis severity, but maybe explain for the listeners what additional assessments you did on these coronary CT scans with regards to plaque analysis. Yeah, we um, first collected the major cardiovascular risk factors in detail for the smokers. We included only those who were actively smoking or quit within, within six months, then arterial hypertension, positive family history, dyslipidemia, diabetes, and obesity. Once we had all the risk factors complete for our database, we then enrolled 1,051 patients and performed first stenosis analysis, of course, a clinical assessment of the CTA and performed also a semi-quantitative high-risk plaque analysis in which we um, not only measured the lower attenuation plaque less than 30 Hounsville units, which is known to correlate with lipid-rich plaque and is a novel, very powerful imaging biomarker predicting cardiovascular events. But we also looked into lower attenuation plaque less than 60 and 90 Hounsville units, the more fibrofatty, a little bit denser, denser lesions, and also investigated the relationship as well. We analyzed the other three uh, pyrus plaque criteria that spotty calcification, positive remodeling, and the napkin ring sign. So let our uh, listeners know what were the main findings from your analysis? Yeah, first we compared smokers with non-smokers, and these smokers and non-smokers were matched for cardiovascular risk factors, except age and gender, and except the smokers were younger, and that was interesting. They had more high-risk plaque, especially the combination of two high-risk plaque criteria when using a low-tenation plaque of less than 60 Hounsville units as a cutoff and having another high-risk plaque criterion as recommended by the cutoff classification end, but also the higher-density high-risk attenuation plaque, like less than 90 Hounsville units and the napkin ring sign were associated with smoking. 
So then we move further to the multivariate analysis and adjusted them for risk factors. And then still the smoking was significantly associated, especially with the low attenuation plaque, with the higher density, like the 60 up to 19 Hounsfield units and the napkin ring sign, which is an indicator for more complex atherosclerotic lesions. And as well, the combination of a minimum of two high-risk plaque criteria using 60 Hounsfield units as a cutoff was associated with smoking. But interestingly, not the others, not arterial hypertension, and also not the positive family history. In this analysis, then we also saw that the obesity had a significant correlation, especially for the obesity, also the lower density fibro fatty lesions. So there was more fatty component in the in the high risk plaque, and in the obese as well. The spotty calcification was linked to obesity, while. That is interesting, again, not the arterial hypertension and not the positive family history was related. And another finding was that males, that male gender as well was highly predictive for high-risk plug, but that has been also shown by other studies as well in the previous literature. Well, congratulations to you and your, your co-investigators who, who, who led this study. And I think for me, it was, you know, someone who does prevention in a clinical, in my clinical practice is really, I think, helps us understand this group with calcium scores under 100, what risk factors are associated with perhaps more advanced or higher risk atherosclerosis. And so you identified men, you identified smoking, especially, as well as obesity, and by the way, the majority of these patients had non-obstructive coronary disease, so they've really shifted to a prevention model. And so, you know, I think in an era where we have calcium scores, when you see those risk factors in particular, knowing that those are associated with a much higher rate of, of high-risk plaque features, I think is really, I think, helpful. I mean, one in five of your smokers had high-risk plaque, um, which was quite impressive. Any final comments for our listeners? Yeah, actually, the study limitations. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. Especially it means for practice, it's very practical when you have a patient come in with a calcium score less than 100 and he's a smoker and obese, then you may already think of that he has a higher a priori residual risk than someone who is on, has a hypertension. And as well, dyslipidemia, that is one of the study limitations. The patients with dyslipidemia were in about 50% already on statin treatment because in Austria we have a preventive imaging a preventive program that invites the entire population age um, more than 45 years for a blood sample test that includes cholesterol. So 50% were already on statin. So it means if, so because the relationship of dyslipidemia, especially a severe non-treated dyslipidemia and lipid-rich plaque has been shown by other studies in the literature, you have to be, we have to be careful in this specific cohort because it's more representative for already it's it's not representative for a patient with severe dyslipidemia and not on not yet on treatment. I think in these we also will find more fibro fatty, especially lipid rich plaque. And uh, second, also the prevalence of diabetes study limitation was low with 10%. Was, therefore, there was a trend for more high risk plaques in the diabetics, but because of the low prevalence, uh, the data are a little bit underpowered. Well, Gudrun, thank you again for sharing this with us, and congratulations to you and your entire team for publishing this important paper titled Smoking and Obesity Predict High-Risk Plaque by Coronary CTA in Low Coronary Artery Calcium Scores. Thank you, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you as well. Thank you for highlighting our research. 
Thank you for joining us today for JCCT Pulse. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Want to read the articles we discussed today? They are available online along with the full issue at journalofcardiovascularct.com. The link is provided in the show notes. Members of SCCT receive online access to JCCT as part of their membership. See you next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our sponsor, Philips, for their support of this podcast. Philips offers the latest advances in CT scanner design and technology to help give you the speed and performance to do more. Visit usa.philips.com slash healthcare slash resources slash landing slash spectral CT 7500 for more information.